Lord, we thank you for your kindness to bring us together in this space and give us your words to contemplate and think about. Lord, thank you for making them so interesting. Lord, open our eyes and our ears, open our hearts that we might see and respond rightly to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that our time here before your word together would not be wasted, but that you would continue to accomplish your purposes in each of us and in all of us together, that Jesus might be more on display that his glory might be more revealed through our lives, that you and he and your spirit would transform us so that Jesus would be lifted up greater and higher. So we pray that in his name, and I pray also, Lord, that you would guide and guard my words, that I would only say that which is honoring to Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. So I was thinking about uh, what you need. I'm not a photographer, by the way. Uh, but what you need, I know some people are. Oh, yeah, Dimitri's right here. Um, and we, if we could talk to Dimitri afterward, like what makes a good picture, just at a very basic level, you need to have light and some sort of contrast. That's just the way our eyes work. And if we want to see something to capture an image, if you're trying to scan a receipt, and it's like on a white background and with like very faint writing, that's not gonna go so well. We need to have contrast and light. And John, the author of the Gospel of John, wants us to see Jesus. And he's not presenting to us Jesus' face, like in an image or a photograph. He's presenting Jesus' character, his person. The things that Jesus did and the things that Jesus said, signs that reveal to us who Jesus is, that we might be able to ponder them and understand more fully who he is and respond rightly. John in his gospel, open up your Bibles if you haven't already gotten, I'm jumping right on in. Um, Just so you know, Uh, John has written this gospel. Uh, John, by the way, you can look in the table of contents if you need help finding it. It's about three quarters of the way through my Bible, I think, or maybe 80%. Um, In the very end of of this book, uh, John has written in chapter 20, 31, these are written, and he's talking about actually 30 and 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is overtly wanting to convince us that Jesus is that person, that he is the son of God. He is the promised Davidic king of Israel. And that by believing in him, trusting him, believing that he is that king and all of God's promises are going to be, are and are going to be forever fulfilled fully in Jesus. He wants to convince us of that so that we might have eternal life and be reunited and united with Jesus forever. 
for his glory. So that's where John is taking us. He wants us to see Jesus and we need contrast. We need some light. We need contrast. And so, um, lucky for us, not lucky, fortunate, we are blessed because we have problems. I'm assuming that you've got problems. I have problems. If someone asks you what problems you're facing or what problems you have facing, have faced, you could probably come up with a list of them. Um, I'm sure I could do that too. Uh, Jesus character, his glory shines on the backdrop of our problems. So that's what I think that we can learn. Many things we could learn reading John 2, but this is, that's just the, what we're going to focus on tonight. That uh, we have problems, not enough money, not enough friends, not enough gas to get home. Maybe you forgot your colored snack. There's lots of problems that we have and uh, we struggle to prioritize our problems. There are problems that we know we have and there are also problems that we don't know we have or we might acknowledge them, but we see them as smaller than they are actually. And the Gospel of John presumes one big problem for us, acknowledges all those kind of ordinary problems that we have, and that's going to be our first division, looking at Jesus's character on the backdrop of ordinary problems. But we have a big problem, all of us together, humanity, as heirs of uh, Adam and Eve who rebelled against God, we do not know enough about God. And not only that, we don't just know intellectually enough about him. Uh, We do not know him personally. We don't know how to respond the right way. Uh, We don't trust God enough. And even those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's given us by his grace, eternal life in his name, we have not yet arrived. There are still ways that we can and should trust him more fully and see him more clearly. So that's where we're going tonight. Uh, I think we can learn our problems allow us to see Jesus' character. And so our outline uh, is going to be, we're going to look at that with some ordinary problems, just an example of really one kind of ordinary problem, uh, chapter two, verses one to 12. And then we'll look at the rest of the chapter two, verses 13 to 25. Think about Jesus' character as, it's, as it illuminates or is reflected by our bigger problems. Some of the problems we may not even actually, if I was making a list out of my problems, I don't know how many of those bigger problems would actually show up on that list. Probably not enough. These are fallen human problems is what I'm going to call them. So uh, you've got your Bibles open. Let's jump on in. So here we are in uh, chapter 2. And we'll see in this section, Jesus' first sign used an ordinary problem to reveal his glory. And so how John tells us about Jesus, not just here in this little story, a true trustworthy story, but a narrative of these 12 verses is highly selective. And I'm sure you had funnier groups thinking about that, all the details that aren't shared. Uh, What was Mary thinking? What was Jesus thinking? How did this happen? Um, We're left with many questions and gaps in this story. And there are many things that we can infer about Jesus. For instance, we could probably infer from this uh, little story that Jesus supports marriage. 
we could probably learn Jesus is for celebrating good things. Uh, But what are the most important lessons that John wants us to wrestle with? And so I'm going to bring to this interpretive thought is that the biggest lessons I suggest for that an author wants to communicate to us in a narrative can often be discerned by finding the moment of peak tension because there's a conflict and then it goes up and up and up until the moment of peak tension. Look right around there and that's usually where the problem will be revealed. And the main lesson will usually be around that. Sometimes, as here, the narrator gives us really helpful interpretive comments, usually at the beginning or the end. And so we see that here at the end. So let's just start off there. I know it's maybe uh, cheating a little bit, but we'll just start off in verse 11. Uh, So what is this passage all about Verse 11, this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. So that, friends, is the big takeaway. That's what we're supposed to get from this story about Jesus and the wedding and the wine and his mom. Uh, And so the signs are, what that means is it's evidence of who Jesus is. In scripture, we learn who someone is by, just like we do in our lives, by what they do and what they say. The Gospel of John has, many scholars have identified seven major signs that Jesus uh, is recorded as doing. And But here, this is the first one. Uh, And the sign here is Jesus manifesting his glory. And the right response, it seems, that his disciples' model is belief. Belief in what? In him, in his person, that he is worth trusting. And it says here that he thus revealed his glory. What is that? Uh, Glory is sort of a Christian-y sort of word. I don't know if glory is used a lot of other places. But what that means When we use it here and in the scriptures, I suggest to you it means the weight or the substance, the fullness of Jesus' character. Jesus' character is more on display for others to see, for us to see. Jesus has, John has already introduced us to Jesus' glory. If you look back at uh, chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we learn, we will learn later, uh, for example, in chapter 17, verse 22 and 24, that Jesus' glory is given to him from God the Father. It's meant to be seen Though the gift to be able to see Jesus' glory is actually a gift that God gives too. That just in our own, in our own, in ourselves, like in chapter 1, verse 5, we don't understand the light of God. We don't see and understand Jesus' character. So glory requires our investment to think about, appreciate, and marvel, and humility to receive what God has given to us the ability to perceive Jesus. So with that, uh, let's look back at this chapter, sorry, this little passage quickly to say, okay, what does this show us about Jesus's full character that would cause disciples to believe in him? So in verses one to two, we see in chapter two, there's 
John establishes for us the the setting, the time, the place, the people. So if you remember in chapter one, uh, verses 28 and 29, Jesus was down in the south. He was down by Bethany across the Jordan and the Jordan River. So sorry, this is an amazing map. You can go actually, if you have the BSF book, it's, there's a map on like the first or second page. So if you want to look at that, that's a better map. Um, and so he must have, um, like we see later in chapter one, he said, Philip, let's go up north. And so they go up to Galilee, which is the reason of the north. And so now there they're going to this wedding in Cana. And so that's about 60 miles away. And we see, uh, we don't know whose wedding it is, but we do find out there are at least, uh, these are, people are there. We have Jesus' mother from verse one, and then Jesus and his disciples. We don't know, maybe there were 12. I don't know, there were five that have been talked about already in chapter one. And so Jesus is there, and here's the contrast then. If you remember where we are in chapter one, Jesus has just gotten these disciples. They are brand new. They're following him and taking, they're learning about Jesus, but they know him not very much, right? And then at the same time, humanly speaking, the person who has known Jesus the longest at this period of time, Jesus' mother, she is there, right? So we have the whole spectrum. And probably if they had been invited to this wedding, presumably there are people who've known Jesus kind of somewhere in between there, the bride's family, the groom's family, whoever, right? They've been in this. So you have some very people who are new to Jesus, brand new to Jesus, and someone, the person who's known Jesus, humanly speaking, the longest. Okay, so that's, that's the setting for us. And I think that contrast is gonna be important as we go on. So in verse three and four, Jesus and his mother interact in this very enigmatic way about somebody else's problem. So uh, verse three and four, when the wine was gone, so there's the problem. In Greek, it's just two little words. The wine is gone. Wine has fallen short, run out. Uh, Jesus' mother say to, says to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. And notice that uh, Jesus' mother does not take this on as her problem. So we don't know, maybe she was, I don't, they say it, it's not we have run out of wine, it's they, they have run out of wine. And the, her intentions are not plain to us, but Jesus' response suggests that he understands at least that she's bringing it to his attention, presumably believing he could do something about it about this problem. And Jesus has that uh, three-part answer. It's very enigmatic. Number one, he calls her woman, not mother, which is interesting. And it sounds a little edgy. So your translation might say, like the NIV 84 has dear woman. Um, and yours just may say woman, which does sound edgy. Woman! <laughs> um, so I did some research and it seems that based on first century epidemic, Epitaphs? Is that what you write on a, a tomb? Or a, yeah. Uh, and there's some other places that in Greek, that was a term of address that could be used by family members with endearment or respect. So 
it could, it has the, that sense, not like, not quite as edgy. Does that maybe, if you would go home and call your mom woman. Um, I don't know how my mom would deal with that. Uh, probably not very well. But we're going to come across this. Uh, Jesus is frequently going to use this term of address, and he's going to use it again with his mother, actually. He's used it here at the start of his ministry, and then he's going to use it when he's actually on the cross, when he is talking to the disciple that probably is John and uh, introducing them to each other, basically, in a, and he's entrusting his mother to that disciple, uh, 19, 25 to 27. And so then, so he, woman, why do you involve me? And more literally, it's uh, a little bit more enigmatic. What to you and to me, literally. And so there, there's a little bit of a range of meaning there, but it's definitely a question that's going back with, back to his mother. And Jesus then says, my hour has not yet come, which suggests, and again, we don't know how much of the conversation, this is a conversation between two people who know each other really well, right? Uh, that some, it suggests that Jesus knows a time and probably his mother also knows a time that is coming that will be his hour, a time when his action and intervention will be prominent. And his hour, that's going to be a phrase that we're going to encounter more in John's gospel and uh, usually pointing to his death, resurrection, and glorification. So 13 verse 1 and 17 verse 1, you can look at that, uh, those two verses uh, there. And so we have then, uh, after this little enigmatic time when they're talking to each other, Jesus and his mother, now they start talking to servants. And so we see uh, his mother... In verses five through eight, they, they use the servants to, to interact. And so his mother said to the servants, verse five, do whatever he tells you, or uh, maybe a little bit better, uh, whatever he might tell you, do. Uh, his nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. So most of this exchange has gone on under the surface, uh, but, and it seems like Jesus' mother does not hear no. And sure enough, Jesus goes ahead and gives two commands, which the servants obey. And just think about that 20 gallons. So that's on the, on the shorter side times six is 120 gallons. Think about if you had 120 gallons of milk to move, that's a significant amount. I don't think I've ever moved that much liquid. And it's significant amount of work uh, to do that. And yet, as you think about it, probably there was no wedding guest that would have thought, hey, wait a minute, what's going on? This is really unusual. The servants probably would have had to fill up those jars anyway of, with water. But the peak tension comes here at the end of verse 18. Uh, this is washing water. This is not drinking water. And so it's only the servants and probably Jesus' mother that feel that tension. And then in verse 9 through 10, in a 
very understated way, we as readers learn what's happened and maybe we're as surprised as the master of the banquet was. So the water has become wine. And when did that happen? It's unclear. It's very understated. And the master of the banquet responds with surprise and he goes to probably the most important person and asks them, uh, verse 10, he said, uh, call the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. And so the narrator then goes and breaks off in verse 11, what we, so we don't, get to see what's the groom's reaction. What did the guests say? How did they say, wow, this amazing wine? We don't, you know, it's just, it's very understated. And so here, uh, this seems to be a how much more argument. If the master was surprised about keeping the best wine for last, how much more would his surprise have been if he knew the whole story? And what exactly does this story reveal about Jesus' glory. It takes time definitely to unpack this. And I'm, I love that you have had time in your groups to do that. And I, I don't like, so I don't have the answer, by the way. So I don't, uh, this is really interesting. And it seems like John wants us to dig into it and think about it. It's part of what it is to knowing Jesus is takes time and is an investment. Uh, The right response, belief and trust is only available to those willing to learn about Jesus. And learning about Jesus takes time. Not everyone is going to take the time to come and see. Now you might be skeptical. Uh, Here's, you know, again, a 2,000 year old story about uh, a man who evidently turned water into wine. And you might think, okay, you know, alchemy, conservation of matter, like this is not going to happen. And I would say uh, that's exactly the point. Ancient people weren't stupid. And so they knew that water and wine are two separate things. And so that's exactly the point. The miraculous nature of this event is what the question is. Do you, do I think that Jesus of Nazareth, the first century Israelite, could do this. And if you accept it, that's a big deal. Because Jesus, it makes Jesus a king. Remember, he was called the king at the end of chapter one. Is unlike other kings. He has far more power than they do. That he could turn water into wine. He offers far more blessing than other kings. Because wine symbolized, especially in the Old Testament, blessing and abundance, God's favor. And not just, and again, this wasn't just ordinary wine, but it was the best wine and a lot of it. And that this is a king who's compassionate to the problems of ordinary people and responsive to persistent belief in him. And one who lets ordinary servants have a front row seat to his glory more than the humanly important people who might've been attending that wedding. And so we, and we, in verse 12, we close this. Jesus travels down to Capernaum. Oh, I forgot to put that on. It's on the North shore of the Sea of Galilee, the Northwest shore, uh, I believe, Sea of Galilee. And uh, we just have this amazingness juxtaposed with ordinary. Jesus spent more time with his disciples and his family. And most likely he walked, the road was dusty, Everybody's feet got dirty. Maybe somebody 
did something silly, like there, uh, there's ju just ordinariness. So a, a principle I think that we can learn from this division, a big takeaway, many of them, but just contrasting Mary with the disciples, Mary's boldness is striking. Knowing Jesus better means learning to trust him with real problems. Knowing Jesus better means learning to trust him with your and others' real, ordinary problems. Jesus' mother knew Jesus better than anyone else at that point. We don't even know exactly what she understood about him, but she brought not just her, her she didn't bring her own problem. She probably did that, I don't know. This records her bringing somebody else's problem to him. And it was, it was probably a big deal for them, right? In a shame and honor culture, maybe there would have been more shame involved if you didn't have enough wine at the party. But come on, like that's an ordinary problem. People have run out of food all the time at parties. Maybe we're going to run out of food at our color night party. We'll see that if that happens. Um, but although it was not time for him to publicly reveal himself, Mary, his mother, expected him to listen and care and intervene as he determined wise. And her trust in him is shown not to be misplaced. Knowing Jesus better means believing that he can and should be trusted with life's real problems. So I'm wondering what real problems, ordinary problems, but real problems have you faced this week or those around you? Who have they, what have they been facing? Maybe financial problems or people problems, health issues, maybe feelings of loneliness or shame or failure. And maybe you just have like traffic problems or a car accident or your boss has been grouchy. How are you responding to these situations? Do you handle them yourselves? Do you think that Jesus is not interested? Do you think that he's not able? Do you see these situations as opportunities to trust Jesus? Do I? And come along, uh, come to him with our situation, invite him into that. Because bringing it to Jesus does mean trusting that he knows better than we do about addressing that problem. And he may not choose to answer or address the problem in the way that we had hoped. Sometimes he doesn't fix the problems according to our expectations. In fact, probably, I don't know when Jesus' solutions to a problem have ever met my expectations. They've always been different. And they're revealing to us more about Jesus, that he loves us and cares for us. And even when the answer is not yet, he sees you in that space. Trusting him to care means being willing to submit to his plan. Life's problems are opportunities to trust Jesus, to learn more about who he is, and to witness his character May you and I not waste those opportunities. Okay, going on, and I haven't left us much time. Sorry about that. Um, so verse 13 to 25, uh, we turn the corner. And so at Passover in Jerusalem, Jesus' signs illumine our bigger problems. Sometimes we think that the ordinary problems are the most important and we get a glimpse down here uh, in this 
second part of the chapter of the reality that you and I and all of humanity face some more serious problems based on our relationship to God as the source of light in life and our estrangement from him apart from Jesus's intervention. Okay, so uh, there are three overlapping parts in this section. Uh, we see he comes to the he comes to Jerusalem, so he's he's coming down south. Uh, but it says he's going. We say south is down, but for them, they don't think maps. They think up, and Jerusalem is up in elevation, which is why uh, it says here Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Verse thirteen, and so uh, we have in verse thirteen what Jesus found in the temple. So he found a, basically a marketplace. We have in 15 to 16 what Jesus did about it. Uh, Jesus' words and actions, again, pointing to the truth of who he is. His intervention here shows that we have a bigger problem, a God-sized problem, meaning a problem that's so big, only God could address it. Only God can deal with this. Um, and uh, then we have two sets of responses that happen, um, 17 to 22. We have sort of a mirror arrangement where we have the disciples, Jewish leaders, Jesus, Jewish leaders, disciples. Sort of in a, uh, the fancy kind of technical word for that is chiasm. So it's in a, like a sandwich with Jesus's uh, sign that he gives in verse 19 is the center and the focal point of that response. And then we have uh, the, sort of more broadly uh, the response of the contrast between many people who believe in Jesus and then Jesus' understanding of that in verses 23 to 25. And so uh, so just very quickly, I guess, because uh, there's not a lot of time. Let me think how I'm going to do this. Okay. Um, okay. So just really quickly, 13 and 14, uh, we're told that Jesus comes down to Passover. Passover was an important annual Jewish celebration and God had called Israel even before he rescued them from Egypt to remember this annually and that he delivered the Israelites from slavery in, in Egypt. And he had given them a way that the angel of death could pass over their household and uh, pass over each family. And so Passover means something bigger. Passover, the problem wasn't that Israel was enslaved, wasn't only that Israel was historically enslaved in Egypt. The problem was that all humans, all people, have been enslaved to death and sin, and we are bound there apart from his rescue. And John the Baptist in uh, chapter 1 verse 29 points us forward to that uh, when he identifies Jesus, look, the Lamb of God, which would have been, I suggest to you, especially in the timing, the Passover Lamb of God, actually, who takes away the sin of the world. So that is a problem that Probably, I don't know, if you're like me, I don't think about that as often, probably, or deeply as I should, um, that uh, all people everywhere are enslaved to death and sin apart from God's intervention. And the Jerusalem temple symbolized God's presence among his people. And God's temple, God's house, was a big deal in that. And what Jesus comes in and sees in verses 14 to 15 are in, in, into 16 are things that somehow 
are not cooperative with God's plan. And he, you know, he clears the temple area and he says in verse 16, get out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? So that's our problem number two. Problem number one, all humans everywhere enslaved to death and sin. Problem number two, uh, humans cannot be trusted to care responsibly for God's house in ways that cooperate with his plan. Apart from God's intervention, we just can't do that. Um, and so the, it seems that there was something, there's a lot of money language here, and that not to say that market, like selling and commerce is bad. God makes provision for that in the scriptures. But uh, God's house, that work inside that, his house should not be involved in commerce at all. There shouldn't be the profit. Who's going to profit from that? The Lord should be glorified and people should be streaming in who have to have access to the Lord. And so after this event, there's, uh, there's again, that sandwich responses. So we have disciples in 17 and 18, uh, the leaders and Jesus, and then the leaders in 20 and 21, uh, no, 20, and then 21 and 22, the disciples. So these problems just very quickly, like with the disciples, 17 uh, and uh, 20 to, or 21 to 22, uh, the disciples were willing. Uh, they were like, oh, wow. Uh, disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so our problem number three, even when we're willing, we don't understand how God will provide how provide for the way uh, our need. And we don't know what God's plan is and we need to learn. So we're finite. And uh, problem number four, we see with the leaders, they're proud in verses 18 and uh, they're, they're wanting a miraculous sign to show how uh, he can do how he can do this. Cause he walked right in like he owned the place, which he does. He's the king and heir. That house belongs to him. And he has the authority. God, the father, has given Jesus the unique authority to clean house. And dear friends, uh, not that we shouldn't be concerned with problems outside God's people. Know that God's cleansing, his accountability and judgment comes first to God's house the ones who should know better. So that, uh, anyway. And then our, our fifth problem uh, that we come across t- uh, that, let's see here, sorry. Problem number five, uh, in this very end, the last section, 23 to 25, um, you know, it's sober and encouraging. It seems that there was Jesus, there seems that there were people who believe in the name of Jesus and think, wow, that's really good. That, that is a good thing. And yet 24 and 25, it seems that there was something lacking in them. Uh, so problem number five, even when we start out good, we falter. And Jesus knows that there's nothing apart from God's intervention. We can't remain faithful. And that it is really encouraging for us. I think just our last kind of point before a principle, how lonely it must have been for Jesus uh, to be in a space where he couldn't entrust himself to anyone in a humanly way, in a human way, yet he does he uniquely does not require 
human support to achieve his purposes. He's the one that God has promised. He's the one that we are waiting for. So a principle I think we can learn from this last division is that Jesus, Jesus is God's loving solution to a world unable to fix what's really wrong. Jesus is God's loving solution to a world unable to fix what's really wrong. And it takes humility to see this. But the more clearly that we see our weightier problems, our God-sized problems, the more clearly we're able then to see Jesus as the only answer to these problems. So I wonder, as we close, are you willing to invite Jesus into your ordinary problems and also invite him into the space where he can teach you and teach us together about some of our more weighty problems, problems that we need him desperately in and to have eyes to see them and in that, that he would give us eyes to see Jesus more clearly. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your kindness for sending your son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray, Lord Father, that you would continue the good work that you've started in uh, many of us. And for those, Father, that uh, are still exploring uh, who you are and uh, what is your son Jesus all about, Father, I pray that you would guide them. And Lord, bless this food that we're gonna enjoy in our fellowship. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.